Welcome to the Arate Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Paul Petico, Managing Director of the Secret Service Group, which is part of the Secret Sounds Group of Companies, and former manager of the Australian band Powderfinger. Today's podcast is a bit of a landmark for me because when I was thinking about the Arate podcast, probably even before I'd really thought through what it was going to be about, I'd always had this idea of interviewing people like Paul who are unsung heroes in some regards. Here's a guy who was essentially the sixth member of Powderfinger, probably Brisbane's greatest musical export. Uh, some may argue uh, and talk about other bands from other generations, but certainly in our generation, that would be true. And Paul's gone on from managing Powderfinger extremely successfully to build an amazing breadth of businesses across music, festivals, restaurants, and more. But I'll talk about that more in a moment when I introduce Paul to you. But uh, Paul and I, we're pretty much the same age, and we kind of kicked off around the same time in the music industry here in Brisbane, and I'm a little bit self-indulgent in some of this conversation, so I apologise for that in advance. But anyway, it was great to finally have the opportunity to meet him and have a chat to him, and I'm sure you're going to really enjoy uh, some of his experiences and the wisdom he has to share. Before we get on with that, though, let me briefly introduce myself to those who haven't listened to the Arate podcast before. My name is Richard Triggs, and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive, and we recruit CEOs, senior leaders, and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. We also provide a range of career coaching and advocacy services for both senior executives and non-executive directors who are actively looking for a new role. So if I can be of any assistance to you, I welcome the opportunity to have a chat to you, uh, either reaching out to me via our website or via LinkedIn. Now, let me get on and introduce to you, Paul. Paul is the CEO and Managing Director of Secret Service, a music services company with three arms, involved in artist management, public relations services, and digital marketing services. The company also serves as the umbrella company for two record labels, a publishing company, two festivals, and a touring company. Paul is also part owner in three bar restaurants in Brisbane, Popolo, The Gresham Bar, and Haya. Probably what he's most known for is the 20 years that he spent managing Powderfinger taking them to tremendous success, both in Australia and internationally. The farewell tour for Powderfinger in 2010 grossed $30 million. So that gives you an idea of the scale and success of that band. And Paul has subsequently gone on to manage other bands and release a number of Australian artists to the market through his record labels. He's a fascinating guy with a fascinating story. So sit back and enjoy this conversation with Paul. Paul, uh, thanks very much for joining us today on the Arate podcast. It's great to have you along. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Perhaps just to begin with, uh, for the people who are listening in, tell us a little bit about what you're up to professionally. 
Uh, hi, Richard. Um, it's nice to be here. I uh, currently I have a very mixed bag of tasks on my to-do list every day. Uh, Looks like it. Professionally, um, I uh, co-promote uh, Splendor in the Grass, which is announced so we work in music festivals. Yep. We also have the Falls Music Festival every year mm-hmm. at New Year's Eve, around based around New Year's Eve. Uh, I manage uh, I manage Powderfinger for a long time, and uh, uh, as a um, hangover from that and they've broken up but um, I, I still have the pleasure of managing Bernard Fanning yep. um, who's making a record so I've got that currently Was that number three for him? Uh, he, yeah of his solo albums yep. yes yep. that'd be number, his third solo album and I think probably his best work well it's yes it's probably th- the three with a twist you'll see in okay. the coming months third album with a twist um uh, we're working very hard. Um, we're rebranding our group, so um, working very hard with uh, creatives and designers working on that at the moment. Uh, closing acts for Splendor. Um, uh, what else? Today, today we had a. Uh, it's a mixed bag. It's always mixed bag. Today we uh, we also have venues and bars and 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 restaurants. Um, today we had a committee meeting with. Um, uh, Queensland State Government and mm-hmm. the Attorney General about tackling alcohol fueled violence mm-hmm. and then I jumped onto a phone call about um, whether we needed a uh, insurance clause for our festival insurance on communicable diseases or not so what, right. I went into the music business and I I seem to be talking about government policy and insurance policies as much as I talk about bands and songs so right um, it is my uh, that's my my lot so whilst you're not CEO of a large corporate, uh, no. in terms of variety of responsibilities and competing priorities and so on, it sounds as though you've got plenty on. Yeah. Look, uh, I think our, our, um, our company is, or our broader group is made up of a lot of small uh, companies that uh, thrive on, on being nimble and are able to adapt to situations. And um, in the music and art space, I think that we... Our kind of philosophy is to um, have a multifaceted approach. So, our group, um, which is significantly, you'll hear me refer to in this conversation a lot, to Jessica, who Jessica De Crew is my business partner. Mm-hmm. Um, between us, um, we have our hands in uh, two record labels, uh, two sets of festivals, um, a management company, a booking agency, uh, a creative brand agency specialising in music. Um, a, a rights management company which manages rights for to dealing with brands mm-hmm. uh, digital business PR company mm-hmm. um, publishing company mm-hmm. it, go, it goes on so there's right. so we try to really I think other than mer- making merchandise on pretty much every every um, aspect of how people spend money on music whether it be a brand or a person that spends money on music we try to involve ourselves in that process so that's our our specialty field. Great. I'm certainly interested. I mean, uh, uh, managing creatives is no doubt yeah. uh, a particular skill set. Dealing with external uh, market forces, you know, as you mentioned, uh, talking to government about alcohol fueled violence and policy that affects your business, talking about emerging technologies and mm-hmm. how that's disrupting your business. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're, you're playing in multiple fronts, uh, but let's get to that in a moment. Let's sure. just uh, go back to uh, where it all began. I, I know you're a Brisbane guy. Let's Brisbane uh, boy. tell us about uh, early yeah. life and, and no doubt many people will be interested about uh, what led you to where you are today. Um, First of all, I just have to say I, I have a passion for Brisbane. I think most people that grew up in Brisbane 
do. A lot of us left. Yeah. But only to discover it was a great place to come back to. Um, I am born in 1969, uh, you know, uh, grew up in the 70s and 80s, obviously, um, and saw the transition of the city. The city underwent immense change Mm -hmm. at that time, so um, as I did, and um, it went from a fairly, like, you know, an oversized country town in the 70s to um, the thriving metropolis of two million people that it is today, but it seems to have not lost a lot of its um, uh, personal touch friendliness and mm-hmm. uh, along the way. It's mm-hmm. so, yeah, I, I love Brisbane. Um, so yeah, I grew up uh, in Paddington. Um, I um, went to school, local schools, uh, Pichatera State School, Kelvin Grove State High. Only child of an immigrant family? Uh, that's right. Well, mum, mum, dad, uh, dad was an immigrant. He came out here when he was 19. Mum's family was more establishment it was okay. a little bit of a classic uh you know uh boyfriend from across the tracks for mum. Right. i think uh dad uh, mum's side um was a political party um joseph reardon was he was a state um minister here i think he was uh-huh. a minister for mines so i'm okay. not sure came up through the labor ranks um and yeah, i think he in the 50s he served in government for a couple of terms um, so mum was kind of one of ten daughters on that kind of thing, and dad was a fresh off the boat Italian post-war, right? Looking for a better life, uh-huh. and, uh huh. And yeah, they met, and you know, and that was the rest. So, and were her uh, parents accommodating of her choice of husband? Uh, well, her dad was dead, so I think that my dad, my dad, uh, mum's dad, grand, my grandfather was had, had passed. So right, I think uh, I think dad got a free kick on that, on that front. <laughs> He didn't have to go and ask the big question. No, he didn't have right. to do. He didn't have to go through that. Go through that process. So, um, so yeah. So uh, yeah. Um, but it was. Uh, um, yeah, it was great. Great family life. I loved growing up in Paddington. Paddington, in the seventies, was not the Paddington that in Brisbane that we know it today. Sure. But, uh, it was. Uh, it was. It was a rough neighbourhood. But um, yeah, I loved it. I loved. I loved childhood. And, um, I and had your dad had a construction business. He did. He was in he was in construction. It was quite predictable for right. an Italian, yeah. Italian guy. He started out um, in North Queensland working on cane farms, but I think not cutting cane all the time. It came, kind of went into the admin part of it, and then um, uh, yeah, came down to followed his brother, as many do, down to Brisbane, and then they went into construction, and then he did very well. You know, okay. How did some great years? Doing what, resi or commercial construction? Uh, he started out with small commercial and went into uh, high rise. Right. Yeah. And so you uh, left school in grade 11? Yep. Yep. Left school in grade 11. Uh, went back, travelled, did my kind of, worked, worked around the place, did odd jobs, and then went back and studied. I really, really was fascinated with real estate. Okay. I've always been. I still am to this day. Mm-hmm. I... I have a, a real soft spot for real estate of all on all natures, whether it be a six hundred acre um, festival site yeah. or or a house or anything you know the building that we're sitting in doing this interview, commercial office space yeah. whatever. I've always loved that. Uh-huh. And um, so when I you say I, studying real estate, I, I, I went back to study valuation of oh, real estate okay, right. and to be an auctioneer. Okay, and um, I did that for quite a while um, at college for a while. And then uh, once again got a few feet and, right. and hit the road and travelled. But 
I think that that was probably my outside of music and food, which I thought everybody liked. Yeah. Um, that was the first specific professional passion I had. Okay. I think which was um, um, understanding real estate, market, um, the valuation of it. Uh, what it all meant right and I learned that I was very intrigued at a very young age and uh, all my friends thought I was oh, I'm like, what? you know they weren't that particularly interested they were interested in bands and music and, yeah. and whatever and I was had a real thing for, for real estate so. and at the time uh, this is pre managing Powderfinger this is yes way right. yes yeah I didn't start doing that till I was about 20 21 this is kind of you know 18 19 right. around that period and so while you're doing that you're kicking around the live venues yes and then then I got a job I got a job actually um, I worked for my dad and my uncle for a little while and it was quite manual and quite construction based and you know I realized very quickly that I wasn't I wasn't that guy. Right, yeah. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't the, I couldn't see myself being uh, the outdoor, um, the outdoor worker guy. So um, I went very quickly to, I had a friend or a connection at Borrell. Right. And uh, I went into selling uh, building materials. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a little bit of like quantity surveying things you had to, you know. Get, sure. So yeah, so dealing with builders and yeah. then, um, and then, while I was there, that was that that was the point that I really got the, the got my teeth into the music business because I remember my job. I actually in my lunchtime and after work, I'd, I worked out a way to uh, at the time make international and, and, and long distance calls from the, right. the office phone. And I, I go, wow, is he? He's working back. He's such a diligent <laughs> guy. And I was sneaking in my um, the, the start of my second career. I was uh, um, sneaking in phone calls from the phone when I could. So. So you uh, were late 80s. dabbling in music pre-powder for yeah, right. pre yeah, we're promoting shows. Um, I worked with a band, well, not officially worked, but just were, it was a hanger on and hung around a band called The Toxic Garden Nerds for yeah. a lot of years, which I, who I loved, they were great yeah. guys and we had a lot of fun and I'd help out wherever I could with that. And then I started, um, you, some people that are listening to this might know the Orient Hotel in Brisbane. I played there many times. Oh, did you? Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, there you go. So the Orient, um, the Orient was something I booked and right. um, you know promoted shows there right. and would do band nights. Yeah, and, yeah. and yeah, that was. That was I was, that was uh, lead guitarist in a band called Leathers In. And, oh, uh, okay. In nineteen ninety, maybe maybe I maybe I might have booked you. It was probably on oh, no, ninety. I might have just stopped. yeah. And I Dirt and the Rebels. I don't know if you remember those oh, guys. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I was. Uh, what was um, Jeff? Jeff? No, Dirt was um, um, he, he, what was his last stage name? Uh, yeah. Dirt Petty. Dirt Petty. Yeah, yeah. Dirt Petty. Yeah, right. I remember seeing Dirt Petty. Yeah, right. I, I probably saw it many times. So. Well, yes, my claim to fame is that in 1990 we won the Queensland Rock Awards. Right. We okay. beat Powderfinger, and well, then there you go. We moved to Melbourne, and needless it to say. Now I'm a recruiter and they're successful uh, rock and roll stars. So <laughs> well, the rest know. is history. <laughs> no, it's so, you know, I think that I'm, we're very, like, look, you, you did, you were better than Powderfinger at one point. That's it. You got to hang on to that. That's hang it. That that's my, uh, my glory days. Yeah. Okay. So how, um, uh, so then things naturally followed a progression and, and sure. you jumped on board with Powderfinger. I did. Right. Okay. And so where, where were they at at that point? Uh, when I got involved, um, we, uh, I didn't really, I, well, I met, um, the guitarist Ian through, we had mutual, uh, friends, uh, girlfriend at the time and his girlfriend at the time were friends. Right. So we connected by being, the, yeah. you know, the boyfriends of those right. two, two the girls. The man bags. Yeah, the man bags. And, um, I, through that 
connection. I was at Ian's birthday party and there was this guy uh, there and I was going, he looks pretty familiar. And then Ian was like, oh, that's our singer, Bernard. And I was right. like, oh, is his last name Fanning? And he was like, yeah, I, go, I played soccer with a guy called Bernard Fanning, under 12s, <laughs> Tuong. And he went, yeah, that's probably him. He, that's, yeah. So uh, little did I know at the time, and I'd, I'd heard of Powderfinger, but I hadn't seen them, um, that their singer was Bernard Fanning at the time. I wasn't aware of it, and who was somebody that I'd, I'd, I'd playing play team sports with since, you know, from, from a very young age. So. Yeah. So, you know, so, um, yeah, that happened. One thing led to another, you know, they were looking for help. I thought I could help and got involved and uh, fair to say we were both as all as green as each other. And um, off into the world we went and tried to, they were at the time when I first met them playing a lot of covers, not so much writing their own music. Yeah. And uh, we kind of, you know, I think they were naturally headed that way, but mm. I kind of encouraged them to... Mm. you know strike out on their own and make their own tunes and that was the way the way forward and sure and i mean we could probably talk for hours and hours and hours just about that but what it might, I, be, it might be a little uh, dull for your listeners <laughs> though if they want to if they, if they want to listen to business talk so. yeah I, I think uh what i'm interested in is uh you know you obviously took a leap of faith did you yep. you gave up your job at borrow i did i and, quit i quit i resigned and then you were there full time you worked for the band full time uh pretty much right. yeah pretty much i uh you know um when you say working full time the music industry in the early 90s in brisbane wasn't really you know you didn't consider yourself doing a job no sure um but it felt like uh, yeah there was certainly yeah. a point a professional point to what I was doing, mm-hmm. but um, so it was look, a lot of fun. I mean, they, they, were, they were good years. Yeah. yeah, and so if you look over, uh, that was about a 20-year period, correct? Uh, yes. Right, so over that 20-year period, if you think about, you know, some of the critical milestones of, you know, it, your evolution, because essentially you're mm. in a leadership capacity, yep. you're leading this, you know, disparate bunch of artists <laughs> and working in a, an industry which isn't known for a lot of structure. And uh, yeah. and so, you know, what were some of the things that, uh, the attributes you needed to develop personally in order to succeed and thrive in that business? Um, I think in terms of knowledge, it, it, it's a, it, it's a lot of smoke and mirrors, the music industry. You, particularly back then when you didn't have the transparency that you do of success these days. Today you can pick a band and you can actually see very measurably how popular they are. Right. You can go to their Facebook page or yep. SoundCloud plays or whatever. You can get metadata and mm-hmm. go, that band is exactly this big and I know that. Mm-hmm. Back in those days, you were kind of as big as you made yourself you could punch to, to be. You well could punch above. above could punch well above your weight. Right. And I think that I learnt very quickly that there was an art in spin. Spin. What yeah. an image is, and what you could portray an image to be, and how to carry that. And uh, I use the term, you know, hold your hold your chin up. Yeah. Um, you could do it in a kind of way where even when you're a small band, it could carry over into. Mm-hmm amplifying your popularity and your message so so that was kind of what i guess my first critical step was learning how to make something popular not because it was good but there's a lot of good things out there but a lot of a lot of things don't know they're good or don't know how to build a perception of greatness or build a perception of 
popularity around something. And I suppose and you're working in a space too where for many artists, popularity is almost counter uh, their desire to be true to their art. And that's right. Yeah. So well, that, that's always the manager's job though. Right. right. I mean, you know, I always try to think with artists that they create and I, you know, I publicise, market and, mm-hmm. and long once their creation is done, once they've made the music, the purity is locked in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you want to promote and develop and make them more popular in a way that makes them feel good and makes them sleep at night. But I found generally most artists are less interested in that process mm. and, and more so it, interested in knowing that somebody is doing is taking care of that and doing a good job for them. Yeah, and so it, you know, this idea about creating uh, a persona which yeah. is bigger than what the band was. Yeah. Is that something that you came to realisation pretty quickly or did it take you a long time? It to... took me a couple of years. Right. Because at first I was... It's kind of like... It's kind of a build it and they will come thing. Back yeah, then. Right. It is not the case, the case today. Sure. It's, it's much... It's different today. Okay. But um, back then it was... If you built it and you, you, know, you looked like you were happily going to market yourself playing mm. a certain room... You, you, you could people would start to believe it word of mouth was um, much more um, I guess uh, you could manipulate that kind yeah. of stuff a little bit and were more. there people in the industry that you were leaning on in terms of older wiser those who'd walked uh, the John them? Woodruff was a guy who at the time I think he managed the baby animals or he'd signed them to a record deal that, and, he, and he went on to um, he, he, he managed lots of artists over lots of years um, but um, I think he was somebody I got some sage advice from from time to time mm-hmm. or just would bounce ideas off. Um, another guy called Tim Prescott, once we did a record deal, which was in the mid-90s, um, I liked Tim Prescott, uh, yep. who worked at Polydor at the time mm-hmm. and then went off to be quite high up through Universal, so internationally. So I thought he was... Um, He's always been a great guy and a great sounding board and a good friend to the band mm-hmm. and, okay. and to me. So. And so how many years was it into that that you finally went, yep, I'm, you know, I've made a good call here, I'm, I've got a good career path. 96. So about five years. Yeah, Right. Okay. pretty much. So what, what was it at 96? I think before that, in the, the year, well, well, we were running on sheer enthusiasm and, right. and drive for like the early 90s. And then okay. around 94, 95, we're like, okay, first album had come out. Uh, 93 didn't do that great didn't do badly mm-hmm. but it was like felt fairly middle of the pack right yeah. we're going okay well it's not well, we don't we didn't really catch a break there right were mum and dad at the time thinking i wonder when paul's gonna yeah well my job? dad my dad of didn't he didn't really know what i did right <laughs> he, uh, and i didn't really I had a trouble explaining it to him yeah till uh, much later but i'll, I'll kind of get onto that afterwards up but um it, uh, yeah, then I think we just hit a batch of songs. The touring was good, but the band were going like, you know, where, what's next? Where do we go to? And then um, I believe it was in Canberra or somewhere like that. We, uh, the band wrote uh, Pick You Up, which was a demo for the beginning, first single, ended up being the first single of, of Double Logic, their second record. So, yeah. and that, cha- that that was, you know, they say you just there's a moment, there's moments that everything changes. And right. I, um, I didn't really know what we'd stumbled across with that song till I played it to our publisher, Roger Grierson, and he just said, you know, um, I can't remember the exact term, but it was something like, you know, 
start putting a zero behind everything or start looking for property or right. or what kind of what are you ready to upgrade your, I can't remember it was some yeah, kind yeah. of cliche right. kind of you know this is going to change everything kind yeah. of way and I was like oh okay right okay um, yeah I wasn't sure he was right um, I did know it was a very good song but mm-hmm. I was going well I thought that previous songs were really good too so it was a case of how much different could it be and sure. then uh, then you know the genie was let out of the bottle when we released that single and um, yeah changed changed the course of their career and probably changed Australian music I think in in terms of the creation of a fairly it's a very like the first uh, the opening sentence of mm-hmm. of their book maybe. and what what did you find uh, was some of the uh, I mean at that time you had pre that day you were running a business I mean it was a band but you, mm. you know in a professional sense and then that moment and then moving into the future you know did things dramatically shift from a professionalism point of view and were there was there a lot more stakeholders that you needed to appease etc yeah i think well the stakes were higher and things got more serious but i would really had been a solo operator right and, uh, with the exception of working with other people and um bernard's brother for a while but we were working on different bands but it was it was more of a you know, I'm the manager and that's all I thought I needed. And then I realized as things got heavier, then we, there was assistants and then there was other things and then there was other right. contractors and then tour managers and then there was accountants. And, and as, as, as with all blossoming businesses, yeah. you, you always do, you know, you, you get initially caught out with an over, you know, if there's a huge demand, surge of demand mm-hmm. uh, and you've got to keep up with, mm. with that. I think that's, that could happen in any business and it, it certainly happened in ours and it was one that yeah it took took a lot of uh a lot of, a lot of dancing a lot of thinking on your feet a lot of uh hiring and getting the right team together mm-hmm. and some of those people are still here today in fact uh, brian quinn um who is you know our cfo um was originally the contract that we hired to do the band's accounting in okay. the early 90s yeah right yeah okay. so so then, 96. We, then we lured him out of his uh out of BDO Kendall's or where I can't even remember what firm he was at. I think he was at Kendall's. Right. Uh, we lured him out of the firm and, and took off his tie. Uh-huh. And he, uh came down and joined us. So ninety six is um, one of the key milestones. Yes. What, what would be the next one? Um, I don't know how many milestones you how in depth you want to get, but I think that the next real big one there's a period mm-hmm. um, which I will say um, is kind of the turn of the century because okay. around 2000, 2001, 2002, three things happened um, that kind of flipped it all really into another level. Mm-hmm. Uh, we started Splendor in the Grass. Mm-hmm. We um, also started Due Process Records, mm-hmm. which was um, a huge success, and Powderfinger released. Um, what at the time was their fourth record, mm-hmm. uh, Odyssey number five, which yeah. was the one that just went crazy. And where it's yeah. sent, it just went to the mm-hmm. stratosphere, I mm-hmm. think, in terms of what you could hope for a mm-hmm. for a, a, a band and an album to, to mm-hmm. do in Australia at least, and, and, and internationally. So, so where was your thinking at? Because Powderfinger were absorbing a hundred percent of your attention, yep. and then at what point did you go? Well, I want to get out and um, and start splendor and do these other things were you just were you bored or you know what what drove that uh, i wasn't bored i was i was i was 
pretty ambitious. And I also realized that around that, you know, even though I hadn't really done much other than manage some bands, I kind of, it kind of hit me that uh, through some of the other bands that I managed that I was doing a lot of the A&R. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't, that was my title. Sure. But in terms of ears on music and helping make decisions and helping with producer deals and picking producers and all that, the process, um, the band and I were fairly self-contained on an A&R front. Yeah. And that made me think, well, I could do that for other bands. Okay. And then I did, I did did that with Magic Dirt and I did that with a whole bunch of other musicians and built those kind of relationships, which was management and an A&R direction. And then it made me realize, well, I'm not actually getting paid for the A&R work. Right. Um, I am through the success of the band, obviously, but so the idea was to have a record label. Right. And uh, so we started due process. And right. We, you know, so mm-hmm. they're, they're our A&R credentials. And mm-hmm. so that was the, that, that kind of realization, I guess, that we could, there was something else I could do in the music business yeah. other than just be a manager. And it right. was through just an expansion of what my responsibilities were to, mm-hmm. to my artists. So, um, and around the same time, coincidentally, um, Jessica DeCrew, who is my partner in all these other businesses, was Powderfinger's agent. So there's a there's like a family mm-hmm. lineage here where everybody grew up and grew into different areas, yeah. but still stayed together. And um, Jess was the band's agent, I was the band manager, and we, w- we would promote shows and we could see our ability as promote concert promoters, mm-hmm. event promoters um, blossoming because mm-hmm. we weren't using other promoters. We actually chose not to use other promoters we went let's keep this to ourselves mm-hmm. you book the bands uh, i'll do the management between us we'll split the duties of of normal concert promoters you know marketing ticketing all that kind of stuff and we did that in-house and inadvertently built a, a touring business mm-hmm. which then prompted us to um start splendor in the grass as well around the same time and how uh and just to further on sure. how how i kept powder finger how i diverted so one of my things I always said to the band is long after your music fades or you you stop performing it or whatever I don't you know I'd, I'd hate to see you driving a taxi or yeah. doing whatever you, that I'd like you to still have a really strong and fertile um, interest in the music business so mm-hmm. when they were in, around that period when they, when they were coming to the peak of their um, influence mm-hmm. um, we, we said um those two businesses that I just talked about, um, Splendor in the Grass and Due Process, I said, would you like to be shareholders right. and stakeholders in that? Right. For two reasons. One, they could have a great influence on the business, but them having an interest kind of vindicated my diversion. Uh, that's exactly what I was going to ask you. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of, they were like, well, at least he's, he's still, you know, they, they still felt like I was working for them as well you yeah know? and and i also wanted to share i didn't want them to see me flourishing in another we, mm-hmm. we you know for all our um you know all the disagreements managers and bands have i certainly felt and always haven't and do to this day a um a sense of um i need to do the right thing by them and take them on the journey you know wherever that journey goes it's one that we should take together as much as possible and it was that way for mm-hmm. 20 years so um you know brotherhood's probably an apt word maybe a bit strong but it was definitely a real feeling that we were a a gang and we stuck by one another uh, particularly around that period uh even through the arguments and the fights we still wanted to make sure that we had common interests and and no one was left behind so Mm -hmm. to speak and so it was about eight years from that point to 
2010 where Powderfinger, you know, ended their career. Yeah. Um, how did your sort of mix of responsibilities shift over that time? Um, I think it, over that period it grew, you know, the, um, the group grew into, we started adding things. Um, there was a part of me that when I started a record label and a music festival at the same time, I thought, well, one of these things is going to go horribly wrong, obviously. Uh, it, just, it was just, you know, just the Murphy's Law. Mm -hmm. There was a lot to do. They were both um, new businesses. I already had a very demanding job. They were both in areas that were new, new ground for me, I thought. Mm -hmm. But, you know, by fate or by, um, through whatever means, they both seemed to flourish. Mm -hmm. um, so, like we did with Powderfinger, as rather than, we've, we've always had a very in-sourcing kind of mentality to everything yeah. we do, Jess and I where we made our own rather than went out and hired or mm -hmm. or did deals with outside. But we tried to, and it's not through any need other than uh, it might be a little bit myopic and maybe a little bit overconfident, but we always assumed when we, we could possibly have a fair shake at doing it better than other people did because mm. it would be perfectly tailored for our needs, mm -hmm. uh, whatever it might be, whether it was building a PR company or building a sponsorship company or mm -hmm. whatever. So... Um, the needs, I guess, of the record label um, and a music festival then basically laid the roadmap out. It was more, much more um, organic mm -hmm. than you would think. There wasn't this overarching great business strategy to build the Secret Sounds group. It was more a case of, wow, okay, we run a record label. We need a marketing team. Sure. We, we, have a, we need a promo team. We need a production manager. We need... Uh, we have a music festival, we need sponsorship, we need all these other things. So, yeah, so, so like um, uh, in traditional business, they talk about vertical integration of the supply chain. It was definitely... That's what you're doing, really. It was definitely uh, um, an unconscious, but um, in, in fact, uh, that was what was happening. Yeah. Yes. And so, look, thousands try their hands at being successful in the music industry. Yeah. You know, we've seen in the last couple of years, a lot of these big music festivals fail for a variety yeah. of reasons. Lots of record labels come and go. Yes. What, what do you think it is about, you know, you specifically, and perhaps in relation to your partnership as well, that um, characterises why you've been able to make a success out of something that so many others have uh, tried and, and uh, been unsuccessful at? It's a really hard question to answer. Uh, I think, um, you know, yeah, there is no real definitive answer to that question. Luck, fair chunk, mm -hmm. uh, right moves, right time, right ideas at the right time in your life, fair chunk. Support of the right people, massive piece of that. Mm -hmm. But I think also um, a tenacity um, problem solving never no uh, no desire or even conceivable notion to ever quit mm -hmm. from something till it's you know you, you, till you're in pieces really yeah so I think I, if I had to try to which is hard to try to isolate what I did that other people couldn't do I guess it'd be maybe um, a combination of those things right people right ideas at the right time the right team of people around me uh, unwavering desire to succeed and to make good with what I was attempting to do 
a healthy dash of uh, luck. Yeah. Well, I suppose that you know you have bands who they really uh, they just happen to write a couple of great songs, and, yeah. and even though they're probably their own worst enemies, yeah. they're a success regardless. Yeah. When you look at your situation in terms of working with Powderfinger, they wrote great songs, but. Um, I imagine it was a very symbiotic situation mm. that through your leadership and, and management, it mm. created the space for them to be creative, which would created the opportunity for you to broaden your own mm. horizons as well. Would that be fair to say? It would be fair to say. I think though, just to add to what you said, there's a lot of bands that write a great song sure. or two. It's very hard to write 20 yeah. great songs. Yeah, That's very hard. Yeah, It's very, very hard to do. Mm-hmm. I know. I've seen many, many, many try, many great bands try. And I think that's, you know, um, uh, I think Powderfinger uh, had an incredible work ethic. Mm-hmm. It was functionally dysfunctional. As you'd probably expect. As you would expect with five, kind of five way, yeah. five guys in a room half their life. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I think that they artistically, they just continually delivered. And mm-hmm. yeah, that's, you know, you hitch your wagon to that mm-hmm. really. I mean, that's, that's something you definitely, uh, you know, I don't, you know, that's, that's, that's a great thing to be a part of. Mm-hmm. And, and that certainly made, as you to add to what you're saying, it certainly created momentum and opportunity and mm-hmm. influence and leverage and space for me to do mm-hmm. the other things, which in turn, I always felt that that the yin to that yang was to let them hitch sure. their wagons to those things I was doing. I yeah. thought that was like the quid pro quo of the situation. So, and that's what happened, mm-hmm. and, and that's how it worked. And it and it's been they're excellent business partners because they don't really they like there's a great high level of trust, uh, uh, incredible level of autonomy compared to other business partners I've had. Mm-hmm. They're like, tell us what you think. That sounds reasonable to us see in six months see in yeah. a year whenever they, I give them another briefing they're very understanding in that, sure. in that and regard, so, so when you hit 2010 I didn't have that autonomy when I was managing them right yeah <laughs> I, might have, I might have to point that out to them one day oh so you're talking I, I about did, that, the relationship I, now uh, yeah now now their right, relationship okay. now is we're still business partners now right. to this day okay. they have okay. shares in now yep. music festivals and record okay, labels sure. and so on and they continue to right and, and they're awesome um, um, very 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 uh, um very trusting, lots of uh, lots of uh, latitude. Yeah, with, uh, running businesses the way we and they're off doing interesting things too. I, you know, yeah, I don't. Know. Yeah, it could be maybe based on the fact that they don't care very much right. about business like I do, but that's fine too. I'm yeah. okay with that. And so when you got to 2010, and yes. it was the end of that period, did you was it a, a breath of uh, relief? You know, that's done. Time to get on with other things, or was it? Bittersweet, or you know, bittersweet, right? But definitely bittersweet. Yeah, definitely um, felt like uh, you know a a fairly big part of my life had changed. Mm-hmm. But it was also um, the last few years were you know they weren't as pleasant as the previous eighteen. Right. So predominantly the internal dynamics or Inter- internal dynamics yeah. and the, um, the, you know, just the freshness of the work. Right. And I'm talking about this from my perspective, yeah, yeah. not the, sure. not the, the people politics, but mm-hmm. just for me, just, you know, when you do something for a long time, as anybody yeah. who's done something for a long time, you want to keep it interesting Definitely. and you want to, you want to keep refreshing it. Mm-hmm. And it was a little bit, a, it started to feel a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, circular. 
Um, but um, I, I loved it. I, there's no doubt about it. I, if, if I could have gone on and so for many, it, many more years. You didn't sit idle, Fred, not soon after that opened your first restaurant. Yes. Right. Yeah. Had yeah, that been something like, in the back of your mind for a while? I'd always, uh, well, you, I, I guess following on from what I just said, it was like doing the same thing and, yep. you know, basically, and not to break it down and make it sound inane, but I was selling a concert ticket and selling mm-hmm. music, whether it be an MP3 or a CD or a cassette or a piece of vinyl, I was selling music, recorded music and tickets. That's mm-hmm. pretty much what I did yep. for a long time. Mm-hmm. Then that, that encompassed the labels, the, the um, festivals, the management. It, was all, it all boiled down to, by and large, those two things. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of interested in to see if, you know, I was, I'm really passionate, uh, uh, wildly passionate about food and beverages, and um, particularly alcoholic beverages, love wine. <laughs> um, we both uh, probably love like a little <laughs> yeah, bit too right, much. Yeah. Lucky this is not an on-camera interview. <laughs> yeah. um, so um, so I, I thought, like, what would be fun? What, what business would I apply myself to? And if it didn't go well, would it still mm-hmm. be fun yeah. being part of the process? And I immediately went to a restaurant. And my, I guess my heritage showed I went to an Italian restaurant. You don't make any self safe choices, do you? I mean, restauranteuring is a bloody tough business in and of no, itself. No, I'm not. Yeah, everybody. Well, my wife was at was saying that. I think she thought, like you inferred just then, that you know it's a one way ticket to being you know half a million dollars out of pocket or whatever. Like starting a restaurant is not usually part of a sound financial plan. Well, it, 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 <laughs> the the likelihood of success is not as short, is it? It's a it's it's a tough market sure. and it's a and people look at it from the outside and say it's a crapshoot but mm-hmm. i um having gone through the process of being a band manager where the odds probably are longer yeah um of bands that try and bands that are successful i think that probably that's a worse odds thing mm-hmm. it probably seemed like a slight a slight improvement okay to me in yeah. terms of uh, in terms of risk profile um but regardless of the outcome, I was thinking, you know, just as long as I enjoyed it. Yeah. And I think that was how I felt about the music business. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that, that I, always, I, I impart on my children today. My mother imparted on me is don't drag your feet. Yeah. You know, every day, take every step vigorously mm-hmm. in your day. Um, enjoy what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, life's too short not to enjoy what you do. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was a new frontier and mm-hmm. I really do enjoy it. I really... I love uh, I love starting restaurants. Uh, and then we went on to start Aggression, yeah, which is a bar, um, makes great cocktails. It does. It's a whiskey bar, and yeah. Hopefully, you visited it. I, I have too and, many uh, times. You know, then, and then um, ultimately, though, we're you know that's that's just a kind of new phase, I think. And I'm kind of learning, like mm-hmm. I did the music business. That you know, I've only been in the food and beverage business for four or five years, but. Mm-hmm. I feel energized towards it the way mm-hmm. I did 25 years ago mm-hmm. towards the music business. And not to say that I don't enjoy the music business. I love the music business and it, and it gets me out of bed and I, I it, it's still the major, it, what I spend by and large the bulk of my time on. But it's nice to have something that um, keeps you on your toes in terms of uh, um, what your capabilities are. And, you know, I, f- I feel quite confident in what I can and can't do in the mm-hmm. music business. I, I know, I've measured 
tested, tried. Mm-hmm. I haven't measured, tested, and tried the food and food food and uh, drink industry as much. But um, it's amazing how many of the skills that you have that are, you can cross. Oh, absolutely. You can move from one, and that was one of the big things. Is I'm wondering is um, is my skill set isolated mm-hmm. to this? And then I guess I to know it, there was other industries I could dabble in and be successful in. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at your sort of uh, spread of uh, different business interests now, you've got labels, venues or restaurants slash bars, you've got a management business, you've got festivals, etc. Do you you see the change, the the mix changing over time? Do you have a preference to drive aspects of that more than the other or...? Um, It's much more a management of a team of managers now. I mean, there's 75 staff across all the businesses. Yeah. And that's not including the food, that's just in the music business. Okay. Uh, there's probably at least that amount again mm-hmm. in the bars and restaurants. It's having great partners and, and great um, great managers, mm-hmm. really. So yeah, it's like, you know, obviously you can't manage that many people and that many different business agendas. Sure. So it's, uh, once again, not through um, some grand plan, but it evolved into a much more formal structure with, you know, COOs and mm-hmm. CEOs and CFOs and... And do you have a board of advisors or...? We don't really have a board. Right. We're actually just considering forming one okay. at the moment. So where um, have you... I mean, you're leading teams. So what have you used to hold you to account? Have you had mentors? My partner. Right. Really. Yeah. I think we are the the checks and balances okay. for each other. Right. We effectively, across the group, well, we have different interests in different businesses, but Jess and I are co-CEOs, I guess, if okay. you will. And we check one right. another regularly. So what's what's her yin she brings to your yang? Or the other um, yeah, it's hard to say because I think we we both say we think we're good at the same things, but then we'd also be shoot holes in one another's eye. I think I think one of the most things is it's an oscillation of the right things at the right time. Right. When I'm confident, she's not. Yeah. When she's confident, I'm not. When you know, it's it's always. It's always, a, it's kind of a like, a, 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 it's, there's always something on the other end of the seesaw. Yeah. No matter what the argument is. And, and often just for the sake of debating it mm-hmm. and making, shoot, you know, shooting holes in one another's arguments. And um, that said, um, that's to the point till you make a decision to do something. Mm-hmm. You were very kind of, I wouldn't say adversarial, but we're set, definitely probing one another's um, ideas and strengths and concepts all the time till we agree yep. and then when we agree we both put our full force behind it, it we both own our decisions mm-hmm. equally um, so I think that there's a there's that that's definitely the system that that works for us mm-hmm. and so what you mentioned that you were thinking about getting an external board or you know yep. um, what's led you to that sort of thinking and what are your plans around that I think growth and expansion and mm-hmm. moving into um, broader areas of the music business and mm-hmm. maybe moving into um, areas outside the music business, okay. which we're starting to look at. Uh, uh, different again to what you're already doing? More still in the entertainment, mm-hmm. um, uh, marketing, entertainment and brand fields. So still in that neighborhood, mm-hmm. just going to adjoining streets, really. Right. So um, that's the idea. and. Um, I think that would be good to, for a lot of reasons, for um, for for raising capital and yeah. for um, 
drawing in on experience in new new areas mm-hmm. where we can't afford eight nine year learning curves okay you know where we yeah. want to accelerate and supercharge our kind of mm-hmm. our growth a little bit um get a get a leg up right so um i think so yeah for, so bringing in a bigger knowledge base of those new areas and areas mm-hmm. that we feel that we can influence okay and so if you look towards the future now and you say five to ten years down the track what do you think of the kind of things that you're seeing on the horizon in terms of innovation in the various spaces that you operate in that you're quite excited about uh in the areas that we are i think um it's um uh every i think it's everything will be streamed i think merchandising uh will make a comeback in terms of vinyl as it already is Mm -hmm. making resurgence i think there'll be some niche formats for the record business but i think streaming is now actually picking up it's always been this when's it going to happen when's it going to happen when is streaming actually going to hit those critical numbers that actually have meaningful um, income drivers for artists and, right. and for record labels. It's starting to turn. Right. I feel like the bottom of the the recording business has been hit, and we're now on the ascent. So I think that that's something to look forward to over the ten years. What that, how that, what frontier we go into, where music is on tap, like a mm-hmm. tele subscription or whatever. And I think mm-hmm. we'll, whether it's attached to our phone bill, mm-hmm. I think that's all going to happen. I think there's going to be a little bit of a homogenization of the. Um, concert and festival business which I think it's going to be a bit little bit it feels like it's drifting already to a bit, bit more of a predictable factory like um, scenario which will present opportunities and it'll also present opportunities for people to, to break that model mm-hmm. so um, I think that's uh, interesting in a space that we're doubling down on in, in, in festival growth and, and, and the concert business I think all the byproducts of, of concerts too of ground ticketing um uh, it's a, an area that we're not deep in now, but mm. something that I really look forward to is is the ticketing business. Well, it's interesting. I, I went to a, a Cirame gig recently, mm. uh, Sunny Boys, and oh uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And you know, to see this place absolutely packed with people of our vintage. Yes. I'm just about yes, to turn yes, 48. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, who'd left their kids at home and, and the place After was the packed yep. and they're having a great time. And yep. you, uh, wow, it's pretty exciting. Yeah. And look, and I think our generation. Um, there is a gap in the market there catering for mm-hmm. people that uh, grew up wanting going to concerts frequently mm-hmm. and now um, you know whether they're empty nesters or have kids that are yeah. you know they can leave at home it's time for them to and there's not that much in the marketplace for it so I think that's a growth area I'd agree mm-hmm. with you mm-hmm. um, I also feel too that um, um, actual music spaces I mean venues and those kind of things I think that's really attractive to for us too we've dabbled in our first venue um, it's uh, called the Trifford. Yes, uh, it's at Newstead. I've been and, there many uh, times. We, in once again, part of the L Brotherhood. Um, uh, John Collins from Powderfinger. Yeah, uh, it's his venue, and mm-hmm. we're um, you know minor partners there. But mm-hmm. uh, it's certainly an interesting space, and and one that we're interested in, and thinking of growing in that area too. Yeah, I mean, uh, when I was in the band scene, you know, in the sort of late eighties, early nineties, you could get two to three original gigs a week. Yep. Now, I've, you know, my friends struggle to get one a quarter. Yeah. Uh, so I think there's a, you know, it's a very sad situation. Yeah. One of the things I'm interested in, you, you mentioned that it's much easier now to assess a band. It is. You know, you can see how many hits they're getting and how many followers and so on. What's the good about that and what's perhaps the bad about it? Uh, the good is um, a lot of artists who used to be beholden to the media pipes that were 
radio, commercial radio, magazines, TV mm. uh, aren't anymore, and mm-hmm. they can find their audience directly. Um, they can have their music, control their music, um, pipeline their music to fans, have relationships with fans, circumventing the media, mm-hmm. and that allows more artists to get to more fans, which is always a great thing. I think the negatives are a lot of bands, if their music is great, they get thrust to a level of popularity before their other parts of their career are ready to cope with it. Sure. They might not have the team around them, the mechanisms Mm -hmm. around them. They might not be good live yet Mm -hmm. because they haven't played that many shows. They've released some music online and it's... They won the voice. Yeah, (laughs) they've won the voice, gone whatever. They've released a song online and it's gone bonkers and they're really going, wow, now we have to go out and play shows. Mm -hmm. How do we do Mm -hmm. that? So I think there's a bit of a disparity between um, the proliferation of a band's music these Mm -hmm. days and where they're whether they're ready for it yeah. but I think that that's being learnt mm-hmm. uh, seeing that, that there's a mistake that some artists are making there and that's being corrected mm-hmm. so okay. um, so yeah I think that that's the major negative is right. that this kind of um, becomes unsyncopated your mm. career with, with where your music's at and where you're, you're, the other areas of your career mm-hmm. are at it's a negative but other than that I think the, the, the access to artists both as people and as music as, a, as their output um it's great. I think it's the best thing that's ever happened to the mm-hmm. music industry. It's, it's really turned everything on its head and it's made it really put the power in the fan's hand mm-hmm. and the band's hand. The democratisation of the music industry. It has. And, you know, and you, we've had to just work out where we, as a, the music industry has to work out how it sits yeah. and how it values itself in between that. But really, ultimately, we're just in the middle of the transaction. Yeah. You know, it's it's what comes out of somebody's drum kit and goes into your ears is really what matters mm-hmm. or what comes out of somebody's mouth and goes into your ears. Sure. That's what really that's really the transaction. We've just tried to we, the rest of us just wedge ourselves between those two things. So Not dissimilar to being a recruiter, really. <laughs> and so uh, the audience <laughs> the audience of this uh, podcast uh, you know, people who are aspiring to yep. take their career to their fullest potential in a whole yes. variety of disciplines and, you know, yep. mediums and so on. What, what would be some of your key uh, lessons that you've learned along the way that would be of value to people, you know, listening into you today? Um, effort. Um, making an immense effort. Uh, not an unguided one or an unthoughtful one, but once you decide on a trajectory and a method mm-hmm. back yourself yeah do not stop trying mm-hmm. um i think too many people uh lose their resolve too quickly in their careers right and will get talked out of mm-hmm. things because they're not immediately fruitful i think the and i i don't think this applies to just i think this applies to all generations but i think it's particularly apparent in 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 people in their 20s today that they um, their attention spans and their dedication spans mm. uh, aren't um, maybe what they need to be. Mm, and I and I and I think everybody has an amazing career in them. Mm-hmm. Um, you, if you can connect that dot between what everybody has a unique skill mm. and everybody has a passion, if you can match the skill and the passion up and uh, stay with it mm-hmm. long enough. Uh, that might mean in some cases 10, 15 years, but mm-hmm. if you stay with it long enough, I feel that you'll, you'll always have a, a, mm-hmm. a great outcome. And you know what? Somebody said to me once, if you, if you love what you're doing and you're not particularly successful at it, at least you enjoyed 
sure. your time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Which is, is more than I can say about a lot of jobs when I did before I realized what I wanted to do where I, I, I hated every minute of it. So, um, so yeah, I think that's, that's, that is the consolation prize of mm-hmm. actually doing something you really truly love mm. is the outcome, whilst you always hope, is ma- uh, magnificent. If it isn't, it's not so bad along the you, way. You died trying. You, yeah, yeah, happy trying. Right, very good. And uh, just to close things out, because I know that you've got other things to get on with. When you're not at work, what are the kind of things you love? You mentioned uh, you love uh, food and wine. Uh, and my, to- uh, well, I, look, I live out of the city because being in my job, um, I found myself, I had to go, I, my obligation or sense of obligation to go out and see bands and meet people and do mm-hmm. things. I, 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 so I live um, out of town. I live in a rural place I come to town to do what I need to do and then I leave so yep. uh, I like um, going to the creek I like fishing I okay. like um, well, actually I, I should say I wish I liked fishing right I feel like I'm compelled to go fishing <laughs> but I, I'm probably not that good at it um, I, I like um, eating great food playing with the kids Still listening play to music not much I actually got invited to play on a, on a social team recently I was thinking about taking it up again but maybe right. I should Maybe your your prompting is what I needed, but um, um, yeah, love uh, love my my wine cellar, um, love mowing my lawn, uh, and I love I love uh, that's good time. It's right. good, it's good music listening time yeah, too. Yeah, sure. The lawnmower. So um, yeah, not really. I think with the um, with the adage of my family and my kids, I think I still love the things I loved 20, 20 sure. years ago, which was. Great music and great food and uh, an enjoyable spare time Excellent. eating, drinking and listening to tunes. Nice. Well, Paul, look, I really appreciate your time and uh, I'm sure everybody who listened in would be uh, really uh, excited to have had an insight into what has been a career where you're behind the scenes of something which is so much in the scene yeah. that uh, you know people don't often get to hear stories like yours so uh well, thanks and uh, hopefully i inspired somebody it'd be good if i to know if i did indeed well have a wonderful afternoon All and right. i look forward to catching up again thank you richard okay pleasure well i trust you enjoyed that conversation with paul i found him immensely interesting and certainly a very humble guy considering all that he's achieved in his career to date and i'm sure that even more exciting things are going to come to him and his business over coming years. I look forward to having you along for future episodes of the Arate podcast. And in the meantime, have a fantastic day.